Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the National Immigration Forum and Miss Scannon, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Josh Kraushaar of National Journal, and I'm delighted that you are all here. Last week, we were down two of our regulars, so welcome back to everybody. And Josh, you are a return guest on Beg to Differ, and we welcome you back. Well, it's great to be back on the show, Mona. Okay. So um, Josh is an election expert. Would you call yourself a sufologist, somebody who studies elections? I love that word. I love the word, (laughs) even though I don't know how to spell it well, but- um, You know, election analyst, political junkie, the, the, any, any one of those phrases. All right. So we're at the uh, point in in a, in a normal year, in a, in a different world, we would be in the part of the campaign now where the campaigns would be launching their closing arguments. Um, and if we think back to 2016, even though that was completely insane in so many ways, still, you could argue that Donald Trump had kind of a closing argument, right? It was um, drain the swamp. It was lost jobs going to China. It was build the wall. Um, What is his message now? Uh, I ask you, Bill Galston. Uh, I join many Republican strategists in scratching my head as to how to answer that question. Uh, Because I think the the standard view is that President Trump so far has failed to develop a closing argument, or at the very least, uh, he has failed to develop an argument to which he can stick consistently for more than a few minutes. Uh, And as a result, uh, his effort to tar Joe Biden with one brush or another really hasn't gotten him very far. Biden continues to get very high marks uh, for various aspects of personal character and also presidentiality, uh, just the the ability to do the job uh, with competence and dignity. So the president doesn't have a lot of time left unless he can state a clear argument tonight and stick to it every rally and every tweet from now until election day, I think his chances of catching up are minimal. Um, Damon, you had a column this week where you said that uh, that you, you summed up his approach as basically appealing for the jerk vote. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, that, that's a, a line of interpretation I've been developing over the months uh, here, here in uh, Trump land. Um, yeah, I mean, I just – it sounds like a joke, but I, I will say in all seriousness that I do think Trump does have a closing argument, and it is that Joe Biden loves his only surviving son too much. That that really does seem to be the consistent message, that his son – not 
Biden himself, the person running to be president who served for two years as a vice president and was in the Senate for decades, but, but his surviving son with the other one having died of cancer in his forties, this son who has had a rough life, he's, he's been involved in drugs and done sundry other things that have embarrassed Joe Biden and made things difficult. He also did things while Joe Biden was vice president that were probably unseemly, maybe uh, crossed certain lines of ethics uh, that probably should not have happened. And the line seems to be that what Joe Biden should have done is, is, is uh, somehow, you know, distance himself, cut him off, uh, repudiate him in some way. And the fact that he hasn't is a sign that he, that Joe Biden too is embroiled and he's like, he's a crack addict or something. It's, it's very weak and it really does risk doing what I think Trump is doing with almost every single thing he and the campaign and its surrogates have been saying for weeks now, which is to play merely to the, the base of voters who have loved him from the beginning and still love him now. Every single thing is pitched to them and them alone. And most of the rest of the country, I think, listens to this and just thinks, ugh, enough already. I've heard this. You're a terrible person. I don't care what kind of murky stuff could have gone on between Joe Biden and his son, because every five minutes you do something worse. So, you know, it, we're, we're picking between two options and there's no contest. That's how the closing argument seems to be unfolding in my view. So, Linda, on um, conservative media, you see the argument that um, the press is not pushing hard enough on this Biden story. And look, I have to say um, that there there is a, a a grain of a point that they have. I mean, there there has been this kind of radio silence about it, um, and. And I understand. So, so I want to ask you how you respond to it because I completely understand the, un, the 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 distaste for this kind of last minute smear, and nobody knows what the facts are, and so on. But that hasn't stopped the press in other situations. So it really does look like um, mainstream media, obviously not conservative media, but mainstream media, have made a decision not to examine the story and not to ask by Bi- you know Biden whether that was indeed his son's computer that kind of thing what what do you say to that well i think first of all that the media uh, does not want to be complicit in what many people believe is in fact a russian op and that uh, the sudden appearance in the last weeks of the campaign of a laptop hard drive that supposedly was dropped off three years ago and suddenly its contents are available. And um, and I think the media says, we're not going to fall for this again. We're not going to give the kind of attention uh, that might amplify this story. But by the way, if you spend any time on conservative media, as I do, as I feel a duty to do, if you watch Fox News, uh, if you do what I did yesterday, which was uh, to watch an interview with Rudy Giuliani on Newsmax, uh, there the detail that they are giving now, the, the argument that they are making, is not just that Hunter Biden has done some nefarious things. What uh, is being said right now by Rudy Giuliani is that 
Vice President Biden received money, whether it was 10% or 50%, apparently it varied in terms of the money that was given to Biden. This was all given uh, then uh by by Hunter to his father, um, and that Biden himself was part of this scheme is so outrageous, um, so over the top, and so without any supporting information. The FBI, after all, has ha- has a copy of this hard drive. The police were notified, um, according to Giuliani, of some of the pictures that were found that may have involved uh, underage girls. And no law enforcement agency has done anything, which gives you to believe that this is made up, that that, that it is uh, distrusted. And I think the media is right not to amplify this message because this is the most outrageous kind of accusation about a man who simply has no history of corruption. I mean, this is not a rich guy. This isn't a guy who, you know, like uh, Donald Trump has places, you know, gold-plated toilets, etc. There's just no indication uh, that any of this happened. So I think the media is playing it right. Well, Josh, um, in 2016, to look back again just a bit, um, Trump uh, at, at the very end, the last two to three weeks, if I'm recalling correctly, correctly, um, he got himself a little bit under control. He stopped tweeting so much. He uh, he acted well. He he took himself out of the limelight a little bit, which may have been a key thing in getting him across the finish line successfully. Um, so this week we have seen him um, fighting with Leslie Stahl, stalking off the sixty minutes set, um, fighting with Anthony Fauci, threatening to fire his second. FBI Director Christopher Wray threatening his attorney general if he doesn't bring charges against his political opponent. Um, so so what do you, for, first of all, how does that strike you? Does it strike you that uh, there just isn't anybody anymore who can tell him to change his tone? And second, what do you think it portends about tonight's debate, if anything? Well, Mona, one of the most consistent patterns throughout the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency is that when Trump is out of the spotlight for a few days, his numbers go up. When he's in the spotlight, fighting with media personalities, fighting with debate moderators, airing out his feuds on Twitter, that's when his numbers tick down a little bit. So, And we saw that during the end of the 2016 campaign, when after the Access Hollywood video came out and the Comey you know, emails came out, he, he actually, that final week, was very much focused on message, under the radar enough to help win the the election by those narrow margins in the Midwest. And as you noted, Mona, he's spending this week fighting with Leslie Stahl, fighting with Kristen Welker, talking about issues that, you know, appeal to his grievances, but he's not talking about Amy Coney Barrett's pending confirmation to the Supreme Court all that much. He's not talking about the the stimulus uh, that, that could pass either before the election, maybe after the election that seems to be coming together at this late stage. I mean, that would actually help him politically if he managed to show an ounce of self-discipline. There are a lot of voters that don't like Trump, but like his policies generally, like the administration's instincts on on foreign policy, economic policy. So he's only undermining himself. And no, I don't think he's going to show that discipline at at this debate. By all accounts, he he hasn't even practiced, hasn't even spent an hour in practice to 
come up with a message, to come up with a few talking points against Joe Biden tonight. So he's his own worst enemy. He's not listening to advice. And, and, and there really aren't a lot of adults in the room that are giving him good advice these days. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am um, the biggest difference between 2016 was that he was the insurgent. And it's easy to run against something, especially when you're running a campaign like the president did four years ago. When you're the incumbent, you have to run on your record. And his message touting his own accomplishments has been all over the map and, and very poorly handled. Well, and he doesn't actually talk about his accomplishments much. I mean, he mostly focuses on his grievances and his victimhood and how unfair people are being to him. But um, since you mentioned Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Josh, I'd like your views on how this has played out. Um, Not that she's going to get confirmed. That was pretty clear from the beginning, but rather the change in public opinion. Um, At first, there was a dramatic majority of people who said that the the uh, seat should be held open and that uh, the next president should get the opportunity to appoint. And then after her confirmation hearings where she acquitted herself very well, um, now apparently a majority, uh, it, uh, it may be a, not quite a majority, but a large number, maybe a majority, want her to be confirmed. And I'm wondering, like, what about all those people who are very concerned about what the fate, say, of Roe v. Wade and so on, um, are they now, like, d- does that really not bother that many people? How do you interpret the fact that that most people say she should be confirmed now? Yeah, we tend to assume that voters are much more ideological than they actually are. And, uh, you know, ultimately, a lot of voters, even those who are, you know, Democrats or liberal-minded, uh, tend to judge things on the merits. And, and, and for those who've caught a little bit or saw some sound bites from that two-day uh, hearing or the three-day hearing uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee, I mean, Judge Amy, Co- Amy Coney Barrett was clearly qualified, clearly experienced, had a, had a judicial temperament. You couldn't come away from looking at her performance and just from a strictly human level think that she wasn't qualified to be on the Supreme Court. And, you know, there's been poll after poll. It's not just one pollster, but Gallup, Morning Consult, the New York Times, Siena poll, all have shown her favorability numbers skyrocketing to the point where they actually, there's pluralities or majorities that actually want her to be seated, including a, a decent minority of Democrats in those polls. So, you know, look, Trump is not helping himself by not talking as much about uh, his own pick for the Supreme Court. I don't think it would have a huge impact if he was a little, you know, on message a little more uh, in, in, the, in the final couple of weeks. But this is one of the, you know, the, the, the appointment of judges, three Supreme Court uh, justices in all likelihood, if she gets confirmed, uh, that's one of his biggest accomplishments. And he's barely talking about it, both at his rallies and also in, in these interviews. Yeah, I, I think what you say is true that the um, the voters are not nearly as ideological as we think. And certainly I keep butting my head up against this reality, and I find it very hard to to assimilate. But it's, it seems to be true that uh, people aren't all that exercised about the issues. Um, Damon, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, just a brief point that I, I think I made on the podcast uh, uh, several weeks ago, right after uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg died, which is that I do think the the track record and the polling bears out that Democrats simply are, as a whole, 
not as energized about the Supreme Court as Republicans are. I, I think it is simply not the case that if the situation were completely reversed and you had an Antonin Scalia dying in October with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, that the Republican side would simply be going, oh, well, after a few weeks. They would be energized. They would be talking about it constantly. The polls would show that Republican voters were furious about this. And I'm not weighing in on the, the relative uh, justice or injustice of what the Republicans are doing with Barrett right now, but simply pointing out that you see it in who talks and what they talk about at the conventions, that at the Republican convention, the Supreme Court is something that people care about. It doesn't come up much at the Democratic convention, and it didn't four years ago when we had just lived through the whole Merrick Gar Garland situation um, where, you know, Obama's running for re-election and uh, a justice dies in February and he's, he's denied uh, his candidate getting, uh, getting hearings or a vote. So I do think there is a difference. It's, of course, true in general that voters are less ideological than, than uh, people like us <laughs> who are talking and, uh, you know, listening to this podcast. But uh, there, it does differ from issue to issue. Right. Bill Galston, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just very briefly. Uh, I agree with Damon's snapshot of where things are now. But... Imagine where things would be in a few years if the, if the new Supreme Court takes a good, hard run at Roe v. Wade and may not formally uh, overturn it, but could, could come close to neutering it. Uh, I would predict that Democrats would suddenly become much more aroused by Supreme Court issues than they are now. And Republicans, I think it's fair to say, and especially cultural conservatives, have had a long run of Supreme Court decisions that they view as fundamentally hostile uh, to their understanding of the country and of morality. If the shoe shifts, uh, I think the dynamic within the Democratic Party will do so as well. Let, let me just add that, yes, um the uh, conservatives and Republicans see the court as hostile to their um, interests, but they but they see it actually in an even more narrow way than you're describing. I think, Bill, because they feel that the court could endanger their religious liberty, so they're worried that the court could say um, that, for example, if you have a rule in your church um, that the only married couples that you recognize our male-female couples, um, that that organization could then be declared to be a hate group and, and not be eligible for tax deductible, uh, you know, tax treatment. Um, so, so that's, that's part of what they are, why they are so exercised. Linda, did you want to add? Well, I, I, I do think that, um, Republicans are much more focused and ideological than Democrats are, are on these issues. But I also think it's, it's interesting that Biden has to date, 
uh, resisted the effort to uh, expand the court, uh, which is often referred to as packing the court. But now he's announced uh, just on the eve of the debate that he would, in fact, have a commission uh, set up that would look at uh, the issue of courts. And it isn't just the Supreme Court that uh, President Trump has had an enormous effect on. It's the lower courts. I mean, he has an almost unprecedented number of appointments that he's been able to make. And those, of course, um, are very important. And I I agree with Bill that uh, if you were to see um, a turnaround, particularly on Roe, because that is something that I think a lot of uh, Democrats in particular feel affects them personally, affects their right to make a choice about whether to uh, bring a child into the world, that um, that you would see uh, a similar kind of reaction. Well, I would just, um, if I've already said this on this podcast, I apologize for repeating myself, but uh, it does strike me that there may be parallels to the situation in 1937 uh, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt attempted to pack the court and uh, because the conservative justices were striking down New Deal legislation. And uh, and in the midst of this great controversy, um, the uh, one of the justices changed his position and voted for New Deal legislation. And it has come down to us in history as the switch in time that saved nine. And it is quite possible, it seems to me, that there could be one or two of the justices uh, who are thought to be in the six-vote majority for overturning Roe v. Wade who might shy away from it exactly because they recognize that it would be so disruptive. So I, I don't, I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying it's entirely possible and it has historical precedent. All right, let's move on now to trying to tease out what we can understand from the polls. Now, some people say that for your mental health, um, you shouldn't look at polls at all the next two weeks. <laughs> uh, and uh, our friend Mike Murphy, for example, says, well, if you have to, you know, just look every other day, you know, don't, don't make yourself nuts. But here on this podcast, we do it so you don't have to. Um, and uh, and and I know, Bill, you you follow this closely. Um, Gallup has a new figure out today. Fifty six percent say Trump doesn't deserve reelection. Um, do you want to talk about the difference between national polls and the state battleground polls? I mean, everybody knows the difference, but but those battlegrounds. I was looking at them this morning a number of them are within the margin of error. Well, yes, uh, but I, I posted a piece to the Brookings website earlier this week, uh, <laughs> which came to a conclusion that surprised me because I didn't expect it in advance. I compared where things stand right now with the, uh, with the large number of swing states to where they stood uh, after the election in 2016, when reliable data became available. And it turns out that although the swing states are, for the most part, closer than the national averages, they have all changed from their 2016 result by roughly the same percentage point. Uh, and so a sign of that is that a state where Donald Trump ran eight points ahead in, in 2016 is now just about even 
Uh, and if you compare that to where Biden stands right now, he has about a 10-point lead. The Quinnipiac poll that was issued as we were talking uh, put it at exactly 10. Uh, several other polls have put it in roughly the same zone during the past 48 hours. Uh, Biden is running eight points ahead of where Hillary Clinton did. And so, yes, uh, the swing the swing states are more competitive, but you can calculate with a high degree, degree of reliability, I think, which states would shift from the Biden column to the Trump column uh, if Trump succeeds in cutting the national vote margin by a certain percent. And my conclusion is that not all that much has changed since 2016. If Trump can narrow it to the 2016 result of two points, he will get the same result as he did in 2016 in the Electoral College and might carry Nevada as well. If he, if he loses the national popular vote by four points or more, he will lose the Electoral College. And that leaves a zone of indeterminacy, which I call the nightmare scenario, the 3% scenario, where a lot of states that matter, including Pennsylvania, would be right on the cusp. Uh, that's the one I don't want to think about uh, because it would guarantee an extraordinarily messy uh, post-election legal and political wrangle. Josh, one of the things that uh, Trump partisans talk about is uh, they don't have too much good news to focus on, but one thing they, they do stress is that Republican voter registration is up. And there are some people who are hostile to Trump's reelection uh, who say, well, that may be true, uh, uh, but uh, but we shouldn't worry about it too much. And what's your view? I mean, does, does do the Trump people have a sort of magic wand for conjuring more rural white voters out of the woodwork? Well, I think it's important to contextualize the, the gains Republicans have made registration-wise in, in some of the big battleground states, because it covers the time period of uh, February to, to now, pretty much overlapping with the pandemic. And one thing we know about Democratic behavior during the pandemic, and most people, frankly, but, but certainly Democrats, did, didn't go out, didn't go door knocking, didn't you know go door to door to register That's voters. That's interesting. Yeah. So if you actually compare the Republican to Republican year to year advantages, I don't think it's that notable. Uh, it's just that Democrats haven't registered new voters, which is which is significant. They haven't been able to to build their base. They haven't been able to register new voters in these very important states. But I think a lot of people have been overreading those numbers simply because the data. Uh, period of the period of time where that data was collected is a time when when Democrats just were not trying to register voters in person. Um, so I, I I would much rather look at the polling, both public polling and, and and certainly you know as Bill was attesting to you know I've talked to Republicans polling House and Senate races, uh, you know they really have a lot of money in the game and, and know uh, where where things stand and they have the president running about eight points behind even in some of the redder districts and states where he was in 2016. So, I mean, I think that's a much more uh, fundamental reflection of where this race stands. Uh, you know, I think the president, you know, he has a debate uh, <laughs> to, to turn things around. It's a last big moment in this campaign. But when you look at both the polling and also some of these uh, micro trends, these demographic trends, 
uh, most notably with seniors. Um, seniors were part of Trump's base uh, in 2016. He carried the senior 65 plus vote uh, by seven points nationally in the exit poll four years ago. Uh, he's now losing seniors in, in almost every poll and sometimes by, by sizable margins, depending on what poll you're looking at. And you're, that, 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 you know, seniors, are they vote. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are very concerned about the pandemic and Trump is not helping himself by his blasé dismissiveness towards the, the, the public health situation. So, you know, states like Florida, Arizona, Iowa, even Ohio, um, among others, I mean, that, those are states where Trump did very well with seniors and the numbers have, have, have dramatically shifted since 2016. Um, do you think there's any um, use in looking at things like voter enthusiasm? Do you think it leads you astray to look at early voting trends this year since everything is so you know strange this year with the virus and everything else? I, I do. I mean, one thing I've learned from the last three elections is that almost everyone, even the smartest people who have made predictions on early voting trends have been badly wrong and mistaken. Right. And it's, it's, it, they, the biggest mistake is that they've kind of extrapolated. They assume the early vote, high early vote numbers suggest, you know, huge record setting enthusiasm. And we, we may very well see record enthusiasm and turnout in, in this election. But what ended up happening in 2016, for example, is that a lot of Democrats, instead of voting on Election Day, they just voted early. And right. a, lot, a lot of Florida, North Carolina, a lot of analysts thought that meant there was this record-setting Democratic turnout. But what happened in, in 2016 is that Florida and North Carolina initially looked favorable for Hillary Clinton, but then they cannibalized all that vote from their Election Day vote. And sure. it turned out that the, when we counted the Election Day vote uh, on, you know, on Election Night, uh, that was a very Republican electorate in every every part of the state in those states. So right. and I, have, I, I would hesitate to draw too many conclusions. I'm hearing mixed things from both parties about the nature of the early vote. I, I do think it's it's good. There's going to be record turnout. I just don't know. I, I think the more important question is how enthusiastic is the Republican vote. That that's the big X factor. Right, and we also have the polling that says um, that significant percentages of Biden voters plan to vote, either already have voted or plan to vote early, or mail in, and uh, almost the same percentage, a large percentage of Trump voters plan to show up on election day. So, uh, probably not wise to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Bill, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with Josh. I would say that there are all sorts of indications in the survey research uh, that there is enormous enthusiasm on both sides. And it's a mistake just to look at the enthusiasm for Biden versus enthusiasm for Trump numbers, although Biden's numbers on enthusiasm have ticked up considerably in the past couple of weeks, because I can guarantee you that the Democrats who aren't enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden are really enthusiastic about voting against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and that to the extent which is near total that this election is about Trump, uh, I, think, uh, I think there is little to choose between the two political parties in point of enthusiasm. As for, as for early voting, uh, I think you and Josh are absolutely right that drawing any linear inferences from early voting is a mistake and has been in the past. This said, as of 154 this afternoon, 47 million Americans had already voted. Uh, that's almost one third 
of the total number of votes cast in 2016. Uh, of course, there's a lot of cannibalizing of election day voting going on, uh, but I find it hard to look at those numbers and not to frame some hypotheses about the turnout that we're likely to see. I wouldn't be surprised to see it back to the level of the Obama 2008 campaign, if not higher. Linda, you wanted to add something. Well, I I hope that uh, Bill and Josh and others are right. I sort of view polls like I do the scale. Uh, You know, you're told never to weigh yourself every day. Well, I'm, you know, don't want to look at the polls every day. But on the other hand, if you don't look at them every day, just as not getting on the scale every day, you could find yourself in a whole heck of a lot of trouble. And I, I have to say, I am very concerned about the enthusiasm of Trump voters. And, you know, it's it's obviously anecdotal. It's not based on uh, polling data, which goes in exactly the opposite way. But in sort of surveying my circle of uh, friends um, or former friends who used to uh, who voted for Trump, I haven't found a single one um, in my actual acquaintance that's changed their mind. And in fact, I just found out a day or two ago about a very close friend who said that he uh, wrote in the libertarian candidate in 2016, but this time he's going to hold his nose and vote for Trump. So I just, I'm worried. Um, You know, those rallies, while they turn a lot of people off, they also turn a lot of people on. And I'm just, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna breathe easy until about a week after the election is over, <laughs> and maybe then I'll believe whatever the results are. <laughs> Damon, uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing I I can add is that uh, you know I share the anxieties while also sharing the general sense that Biden is is winning, but. It is important to keep in mind when, you know, you're unsure which way it's going to go to recall that the situation for the last four years has been unbelievably constant in when it yep. comes to public opinion polling. You look at 538's tracking poll of approval. From the third week of Trump's presidency, he has been about 10 points underwater every single time, every day. It has never changed. If you go to 538, which has this great uh, you know, tracking poll of uh, Trump versus Biden going way back uh, over a year, last October on this date, Biden was winning by seven. Today, according to this, he's winning by 7.9. In November a year ago, so 11 months ago, Biden was up a little more Then it was more like 10 points. This has not changed. So I agree that there are some Americans who just want Trump and are excited by him and want to vote for him. But unless there is a systematic error across just about every poll, there are simply more Americans who detest him. And that <laughs> and that is going to be the reality. And it's going to really come down to turnout. Do do the Democrats hate Trump as much as Republicans love Trump? And if everyone shows up who answers these polls this way, uh, it's pretty clear what the outcome should be. But we yeah, shall see. At the risk of um, at the risk of sounding optimistic, because I'm nervous too, and I agree with what you're all saying and what Linda said about not being 
ready to rest easy until it's really in the bag. But um, I will just point out a couple of other little data. Um, one is that uh, there, there were third-party candidates who polled a lot of votes in 2016. If, if Hillary Clinton had only won the votes that went for Jill Stein, for example, she would have been president. Um, this year, uh, there's a very hardly known at all um, third-party candidate from the Libertarian Party um, who isn't picking up that much. And if you look at the polling data, there's um, you find that um, voters who chose a third party or didn't vote in 2016 are backing Biden by a 10-point margin. So that's encouraging. Um and uh, and then, of course, there's the old chestnut that um, that a president in a reelect, um, if he if he's not above fifty percent, if he's not at fifty percent or above, he tends to lose. So there's that. Uh, and and uh, I don't believe um, Josh, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe Trump has ever been above fifty percent approval, has he? That's right. He's never hit fifty percent in any poll, any reputable poll, I should say. Since he was elected, though, I will say that for President Trump, a point or two of gain in, in, in job approval is sort of the equivalent of 10 points for any normal president uh, because his numbers don't move a whole lot, as, as we've been discussing. So, like, you know, if, if, all, all the president needs to do is gain a point or two and, and the Senate could end up, you know, being much more favorable, much more likely to remain under Republican control uh, and, and he could get back in the, you know, get back to contention in some of these battleground states if he just jumps a couple points in, in the poll. So, it, you know, even though his numbers don't move a whole lot, two points and a job approval for President Trump can mean the difference between a close race and a blowout. Maybe he should try to get impeached again because that improved his standing. <laughs> Mona, could, could I ju- Mona, could I just ask our data guys a, a, a question? And that is the, the question about whether or not you're better off today than you were four years ago. And apparently there is some polling data that suggests that people, despite a pandemic and everything else, feel better off today. I know this is one of the things that Trump likes to tout. Um, anybody have an explanation of that? I think it may have a little bit to do with the economy. I mean, that's the one strength, generally speaking, that the president has in his poll numbers. And and, and I think a lot of people were expecting an even worse economic depression, uh, you know, an even deeper hole than than we are right now. So, I mean, I think some of that may reflect uh, a feeling among some voters that things aren't as bad as perhaps they, they worried about when the pandemic first started. Okay. Um, Josh, can we just spend just a minute on how you will be spending election night? Uh, what are the telltale states, districts, races that you think are the ones to watch and, and will be the most um, revealing about how the how the thing is going? Well, uh, the, the state, let me start out with the state uh, map, because Florida is going to be one of the states that reports most of the results early on on election night. And if Joe Biden wins, if the race is called for Joe Biden in Florida, that it's almost impossible for President Trump to to win election, the election. Can I can I interrupt real quick? Um is is it the case that Florida counts its absentee ballots before election day? I believe so. I know I know yeah. that unlike some states. Yeah, okay. They yeah. they're not they're not waiting till after the election to count ballots. Okay. So okay. Believe, 
that's the case. Good. Okay. And they don't. They don't have. They have. A, they've had an early voting system in place for many years, so yeah. they don't have. A, they haven't had to rejigger their system to accommodate for the pandemic all that much. Um, you know, so I'm looking at Florida very closely. As far as the Senate races, I mean, so I think Florida is going to be the one state everyone's focused on. Uh, my colleague at the Cook Political Report, Dave Wasserman, has actually pointed to the uh, precinct where the villages, the retirement communities, <laughs> as a huge bellwether. Uh, it's a Republican area, but if it's not quite as Republican, uh, Sumter County is not quite as Republican this time around, it's a big, big sign that Trump is in trouble throughout the country. Um, as far as Senate races, I, I would point to the Iowa Senate race between Joni Ernst, uh, the freshman senator, and Teresa Greenfield, the, the Democrat, which looks like it may be headed in a, in a slightly Democratic direction, which is pretty, pretty remarkable for a state that, that, that did give that gave Trump a nine point margin in 2016 and also North Carolina with the sex scandal of the democratic challenger, uh, Cal Cunningham, that that race is getting very close and that's going to be one of the, the, the more, more competitive uh, Senate races on the map. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I said that was my last question on this topic, but I can't resist. Um, do you think it's, do you think it's crazy that Alaska, the Alaska Senate race could go to the Democrat? It's not crazy. Uh, I, I view Alaska in in the same way I view some of these more Republican states that are being talked about, like Kansas and South Carolina. If you look at the polling closely enough, there, there are Republicans that haven't fully come home to the party. And I think in the end, Republicans should hold on to those pretty, pretty darn Republican seats, including, including the Alaska one. Right. Okay. Um, let us now turn to uh, a story that I find immensely upsetting, um, but it's in the news this week, and I think it's important to address it. I hope that that these these kinds of things will we won't be seeing so much of. But uh, it's been reported now that uh, that 545 of the children who were separated from their parents uh, at the southern border have never been reunited with their families. And that about 60 of the children were under the age of five when they were separated. So Linda, I'm going to turn to you as our resident um, immigration expert. Um, first of all, has there is there any precedent for this sort of thing? No, I, I don't think there is. I mean, this is, um, this is the most appalling failure of government, uh, just, you know, apart from the humanitarian scandal, that they could not even gather information, put that information uh, in a form that could be kept and shared between agencies, and that they would not be sure to follow through is just incompetence at the very, very highest level. You know, we keep hearing about QAnon and the Save the Children campaign. Well, if there is a cabal out there uh, kidnapping children, uh, maybe they ought to look uh, to President Trump, not as the savior, but as the person who's actually done it. And, you know, there's 500 kids now who have been taken away from their parents. And it's just, um, it's so scandalous. And it falls, by the way, uh, right after we learned of an internal report from the Justice Department that made it clear that uh, punishing parents, that using children as a way uh, to harass uh, people 
was in fact the very uh, driving force behind the zero tolerance policy. They wanted to make sure that people in Central America got the picture that if they dare cross the border with a child in tow, that child was going to be taken from them. And apparently now, at least for hundreds of them, uh, not only not returned, but they've lost track of who the parents are. They don't even know how to get a hold of the parents. Yeah, and Bill, um, some of the um, some humanitarian groups and others have been attempting to find the parents. But of course, one of the things that intervened was COVID, and some of these many of them are in Central America in remote areas where it's hard to get to. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a nightmare. I'm just going to read you a quote from our former attorney general, who we tend to think of sort of sympathetically because he was so much of a target for, um, Trump because he did the, the ethical thing in recusing himself from the Russia investigation. But on this subject, he was just appalling. He he said, according to that internal report that uh, Linda was mentioning, and I'm pretty sure he also said this publicly at the time, we need to take away children, Sessions told the prosecutors. Um, if if uh, they care about kids, don't bring them in. Won't give amnesty to people with kids. Uh, what is one to say, Mona? Uh, you know, uh, moral blindness of a very profound kind. Uh, this, and let me be a little bit more precise about that. The argument appears to be that if the end is arguably worthy, uh, then any and all means are per permissible in pursuit of that end. Uh, I am not the first to point out that that kind of instrumental reasoning leads in very, very dangerous directions. Absolutely. And here, and here we are. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's an old, almost hackneyed phrase that such and so an act shocks the conscience. Well, I don't think that phrase is over the top in describing this particular policy. If it had simply been in a, incompetence, uh, it would have been culpable, but culpable in a different way. But it's not incompetence. It's indifference, moral indifference to the distinction between permitted and forbidden means in pursuit of political ends. And for that, I think the people who executed this policy, conceived this policy, condoned this policy, uh, are going to be condemned uh, in the light of history. I really do. This is, this is the moral low point of an administration that does not lack for moral low points. Um, Damon, I think, I think Bill makes an excellent point about um, means and ends. You know, sometimes that line can get murky. Um, after 9-11, we all you know, sort of struggled through discussions about what we would do in a in a ticking time bomb situation if we thought we were in, you know, possession of a terrorist who knew that there was a dirty bomb in the middle of Manhattan somewhere, you know, do you resort to torture, that kind of thought experiment, means and ends. The end is obviously very 
very good there and the means are disgusting, but maybe, okay. So that it's, it's, it's not an absolutely easy issue, but in this case, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Um, you know, if your goal is to cut down on illegal immigration, separating nursing mothers from their infants does not seem to meet means and ends. <laughs> No, I, I I don't even really know what to say about it. So I guess I I will um, cede my comment to our friend Sarah Longwell, who had I thought the best pithy tweet in response to this when the story broke a couple nights ago about the 545 migrant children separated by the Trump administration and how their families can't be found. She just tweeted, "When an administration is both morally bankrupt and incompetent." And that really is just all that needs to be said. I mean, it is just beyond, uh, it, it, is, it is the kind of perfect storm of awfulness of everything this administration stands for. And I agree with Bill. I don't often make references to, you know, the, you know, you're on the right side of history or wrong side of history. I don't really think history has sides, but I do think that uh, it's pretty clear that uh, there aren't going to be a lot of people around looking back at that episode and saying, well, you know, they really had to protect the country from those migrants coming in. So we had to steal the children and raise them as orphans and send their parents back without them and then couldn't figure it out. I mean, it's it's just so appalling. I I I, I have nothing more to say. So. Josh, of course, they have their they have their excuses. Um, they say, or at least I'm not talking about the officials here. I'm talking about sort of people on the right who are defending this. Their little fantasy that they've spun goes as follows: These weren't really their children. These were human traffickers um, using these children to get into the United States. And, uh, we were the heroes here by removing these children from people who were not actually their parents. Um, so uh, I, am not going to ask you to respond to that because it's obviously invented. Uh, I mean, there might've been one or two cases like that, but not thousands. Um, but, um, but I, I want to ask a different question because one of the things that's been so disheartening about this whole era is that we don't have debates anymore about issues like immigration. We have dueling, well, much, much of it coming from the right, you know, just, just um, uh, false narratives uh, ginned up to, to uh, appeal to people's emotions, to their gonads. And, uh, and, and real argument gets swallowed up. I mean, I would love to have a debate. I mean, look, it's not a simple question, right? What you do when, um, you know, thousands of people are trying to, to claim asylum and whole families are coming to the border. I mean, that's a hard problem. Uh, but, um, but I wonder whether we have lost the capacity to even have debates and reasonable discussions. I'm pessimistic in the short term. I'm a little more optimistic in the in the medium term. I mean, the, the, in politics and with this administration, certainly, you know, the fish rots from the head, and the president right. sets the tone and the mood of the party. And certainly, Trump has infected his views, his temperament, his lack of empathy with with almost every Republican office holder, whether they say so publicly or or or, 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 or uh, you know, or tortured privately uh, as a result of what's happened these last few years. But if you look at the polling, even among Republicans in these last couple of years, and, you know, like immigration, uh, hardline immigration policy is not 
politically popular. In fact, it's lost a lot of support, the, the hard position that this administration has taken, largely because President Trump, an unpopular President Trump, has been associated with it. A lot of the, the policies that are you know connected to this lack of empathy, lack of compassion, have lost favor as, as Trump has been associated with failures governmentally and, and, and just chaos across the country. So I, I mean, I'm one of the, I think I'm in the minority generally, but, you know, if Trump loses a decisive uh, re-election campaign and loses in states like, you know, Georgia or even Texas that have never been uh, competitive for a long time for Democrats, you know, Republicans for their own survival are going to need to recognize that this is not the way forward. This is, you're not going to be able to win back power by behaving like the, the president. And sure, he may be on Twitter. Sure, he may have a, you know, a lot of people who, who follow him, but I, I, I actually kind of think that uh, we're, we've hit rock bottom <laughs> and there are a lot of problems, a lot of problems with social media, a lot of problems with this course. Um, and I don't I don't see a magic wand changing these these institutional failures and institutional problems. But I also think that Trump is sort of the straw that stirs the drink of, a, of the party and, and certainly of the, of the moment. And if he does lose convincingly, um, I, I, I think that, you know, Republicans are going to engage in a a civil war, a reckoning of sorts, and it may not happen overnight, but I think um, the party knows that for its own survival, they can't continue on this course. Well, as the old saying goes, from your lips to God's ears, <laughs> uh, let, let's hope that that's what happens. Um, all right, let us now turn uh, to our final segment where we highlight or lowlight something for our listeners. Linda Chavez. Well, I was going to just recommend the Borat movie, which is coming out tomorrow, but I think I'll be a little more serious than that. I am planning on watching it, by the way. It's a little comic relief from uh, what's going on. But I think there was an important story that I think it deserves a lot more attention. It was in the New York Times, and it says... Europe wonders if it can rely on U.S. again, whoever wins. And I think this is one of the great challenges uh, of the next, next administration. And if even if it is Biden, who obviously has a lot of personal respect among leaders, but we've become a rather unreliable ally in recent years. And the fact that we abandon our friends We've abandoned uh, the people who fought alongside us in in our wars. Uh, I think this is going to be a big problem, and I think it's going to be the single most serious foreign policy problem that a new president faces. And by the way, it is kind of encouraging that Biden has stated this as one of his objectives, as restoring our Absolutely. relationship with our allies. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Bill Galston. Well, uh, believe it or not, uh, Linda took away my point. <laughs> uh, About what? Yeah, but I'm glad that uh, you know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad that the famous Mona Linda mind meld uh, is now is now getting a, a, a third participant. So I will, you know, I'll make a really obscure point about bellwethers to look at. Uh, since 1944, uh, a little county in Ohio, Ottawa County, has gotten it right every time for 19 consecutive presidential elections. Uh, it happens to be the county where the distinguished political scientist and sociologist Robert Putnam was born, someone who really has his finger on the pulse of America about as, about as well as anybody. 
Uh, and so the, the question is, will, will the 20th time break the streak? If not, it's certainly something, it, it is certainly a county to watch uh, because it has one of the longest streaks of getting it right at the presidential level in all of the 3,000 plus counties in the United States. Damon. Uh, well, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the last several years talking about the Trump era as one of racial polarization uh, because, well, for one thing, our president is a, a giant racist and he loves to uh, kind of weaponize racial uh, tensions for his own political benefit. And that's all true. But one thing that uh, it hasn't gotten as much play is that there is also in our politics a v growing and very large gender divide. And there's an excellent piece in New York Magazine uh, a couple days ago by Eric Levitz titled Men and Women Have Never Been More Politically Divided. There's some good data in there and uh, very interesting parallels, uh, you know, over time in this country as well as internationally on this issue. And I suspect uh, in the coming electoral cycles, this gap is going to play a, a larger and larger role in our politics. So it's a, it's a well worth Worth reading and pondering. Josh. Well, I want to talk about another bellwether of sorts, uh, a race that is unusually close, surprisingly close, and one that could signal a Republican blowout, a Democrat Democratic landslide, I should say, uh, in November. And that's Mark Meadows' old house seat uh, in, in Western North Carolina covering Asheville and, and the Blue Ridge or, and, and the mountains out there. Um, polling from both Republicans and Democrats suggests that the Republican nominee, a 25-year-old um, candidate by the name of Madison Cawthorn, who spoke at the, the Republican convention, is at risk of losing to, to a, a Democratic uh, national security expert. Uh, and, and that would be a district that Trump almost carried by 20 points in the mm. 2016 election. It's Mark Meadows' house seat. It is the heart of conservative North Carolina. And North Carolina will be counting ballots probably earlier than most of those East Coast states. And if Mark Meadows, the chief of staff to President Trump, loses his old, if he sees the Democrats flip his old house seat uh, early in the night on election night, not only will it be a sign that this is a big blue wave coming, but it will be an extraordinary embarrassment to the chief of staff and to the Trump administration. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Mine is, um, I would like to recommend a piece by my dear friend and former podcasting partner, Jay Nordlinger. He wrote a piece in National Review this week about uh, called Trump and Dictators. And it is a, you know, survey of the entire literature, uh, that, and it's quite, quite a lot of it, by the way, um, of Trump's uh, views on dictators and authoritarians of various kinds, his embrace of cruelty and uh, sheer uh, uh, power, um, and uh, his willingness to praise, uh, to praise killers. Uh, so it is, it's an important historical document. I mean, I think you should download it and, and put it in your files uh, for the days when people say that we are exaggerating uh, how bad Trump was. All right. Thank you, one and all. Josh, thanks so much for coming back, sharing your wisdom. It's good to have the team all back together. And we will return next week as every week. Thank you. Thank you.